Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you. Unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Eric, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, Bethany. I'm glad you could be with us as we consider the scripture together this morning, particularly as we continue a series on the values of God's kingdom. We're looking this morning at blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So please take a moment with me. We'll pray. Ask uh, God to teach us this morning from God's word. Father, we're grateful to gather this morning within these walls to listen for your voice. We commit these moments to you now. We pray that indeed it would be uh, you speaking to our hearts, Father, in a way that only you can, and that we would have not only ears to hear, but hearts to respond. We're mindful, Father, that we live in a time of fear, in a time of division, a time of harsh words. Teach us uh, what it means to be people of mercy, but not only teach us, my prayer, Father, is that you would make us people of mercy. Take us there, Father, for your purposes and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As some of you know, I teach in various places uh, to Bible college students. And when I go and teach, I'm often asked to take a session and speak only to the men. And my favorite thing to do, and I do it just about all the time when I speak to the men, is I show a five-minute little TED Talk video entitled The Demise of Guys by Philip Zimbardo. Have any of you seen that in the room? Anybody at all? Like, not enough of you. It's really good. It's a good video. But I'll just, you don't even need to watch. I'll give you a summary here. Zimbardo's a, a psych prof at Stanford, and he says that the male populace in America is, is imploding. They're losing their social skills. They're terrified of women, and many of the single women in the room would shout amen when they hear that. I know. 
because they talk to me pastorally about this problem, and I get it. It's a, it's a real, it actually is a real problem. But then as he goes on to un- unpack his reasons for this, he says that the problem is that men have now available to them an entire virtual world. He says the biggest problem, the biggest three problems for men in American culture, young men growing up, are porn, video games, and fantasy sports leagues. The easy access to those three things have created an alternative reality that's predictable, safe, risk-free. I'm in total control as a male. I can have gratification uh, when I want and kind of this fantasy reality. And the fantasy reality becomes better than reality. Does that make sense? So there's a temptation, but we have to declare to these young men and to each other over and over again, vicarious reality is not reality, right? And we need to tell ourselves that today Because in a few hours, all of us will sit in front of TVs, gorge on chips, ice cream, hot dogs, drink beer, and think we're athletes. It's ridiculous, right? Vicarious reality is not reality. We love, as Americans, uh, to passively and vicariously involve ourselves in things, and then we make the mistake of thinking that this constitutes effort on our part, and somehow because we've identified with it, we're in it. We're not in it. Yesterday, because my wife and I are uh, winter sport geeks, we spent some time watching uh, bobsledding in Austria. Who does that? (laughs) We do, right? So we're watching bobsledding on TV, and uh, the Americans won. The last one's down, the luge thing there, uh, and... And they won, and I'm sitting with Donna, and as soon as they won, I go, we did it! That's what I said. And she goes, we didn't do anything. (laughs) Right? Just this reality check. Okay, I'm an American. I have an American passport. That doesn't mean that I did anything to contribute to the bobsled victory that happened in Austria yesterday. So it's the same, like this this vicarious notion uh, is because it's so... um, ubiquitous and like systemic in our culture, we vicariously participate. We're at risk actually of letting that bleed into our faith. And and in particular, when we come to this beatitude, we're critiqued and challenged. Because listen, this is not the beatitude we're studying this morning. Blessed are those who value mercy. No. Blessed are those who march on behalf of mercy. Or march in order that we might be a merciful nation. No. Nothing wrong with valuing mercy. Nothing wrong with marching on behalf of mercy. Nothing wrong with upholding mercy. But listen to Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are actually doing mercy. And what's the blessing? They'll receive more mercy. This is very important in our moment for a number of reasons. Uh, We live at a time where the prevailing language is something like this. If you're outside my tribe, I don't trust you. Last week, we had people uh, writing in these little prayer books, uh, various prayers, hungering and thirsting for God to do something. One person said, I hunger and thirst for restored relationships. I voted one way, and I've lost four friends over it. This is a reality (laughs) in the moment. If you're not in my tribe, if you didn't vote the way I wanted you to, you're out. And, 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 and when this happens, bitterness sets in, relationships are broken, uh, we become angry, become cynical, and we're at risk then of not being the very people that Jesus calls us to be here, people of mercy. 
So we want to look at this this morning. What does it mean to be people of mercy? And as we look at it, we'll see that we're called to three movements. Movement into an identity as recipients of mercy. Movement into action as those who give mercy. And then movement into receptivity so that we receive yet more mercy. <laughs> identity, action, receptivity. But to begin with, we need to kind of define the word mercy. And so we want to start there. There's a, the Greek uh, language has a word for mercy, elios. And when the choir sings Kyrie eleison, or eleison, they're, they're praying, Lord, have mercy. Eleison, mercy. And so now you know, you know the, like phonetically how the word sounds, but what does it mean? Well, the word means mercy uh, as, a, as a manifestation or a characteristic of love. But in the biblical sense, mercy is more than just love. And this is very important to see here. Mercy is in some sense the whole, kind of the totality of God. In other words, if you, if you were going to define God, how would you define God? Well, God defines himself uh, when he says, I am who I am, Exodus 3.14. That's his definition, I am who I am. Well, that's not very clear. And so we ask for a little bit more, and then we get two kind of unfoldings of that. And the, here's the two. I am gracious to whom I am gracious, and I show mercy to whom I show mercy. You want a definition of God? God gives grace. And God gives mercy, right? And, and so uh, when we come to this here, this mercy is part of what it means to, on God's part to be a covenant-keeping God. And in the Old Testament, when there's a covenant, it's a, like it's a contract between two parties, but it's more than a contract. Because a covenant uh, stands in distinction to a contract in that the parties in the covenant are saying... No matter what the other party does, I, this is my part. I will do my part no matter what the other party does. That's why we pastors don't participate in uh, ceremonies with a marriage contract. We don't want to do contracts. We want to do covenants. Why? Because a covenant says, this is what I will do. Whatever you do, I mean, I'm trusting that you will do your part, but even if you don't do your part, I'll do my part. Wow. That's, that's a covenant. Right? So, so God then, as a covenant keeper, here's what God is saying. I will show mercy even when you turn away, even when you betray me, even when you're angry at me, even when you doubt me, even when you fail me. I will continue to show mercy because, listen, my mercy was never predicated on your performance. So when you are in need, I will love you. Why? Because I'm love. And when you failed, I'll forgive you. Why? Because I'm forgiveness. And when you're hungry, I'll feed you. Why? Because I give and give and give and give, not because you're worthy, but because I am merciful. That's God. And if that's God and we're made in God's image, then we are at our best when we what? Are people of mercy. Now, there's plenty of evidence in our particular culture in the moment of not mercy. Plenty of evidence. There's not mercy at the borders. There's not mercy in broken family relationships. There's not mercy in office politics. There's not mercy in politics. And in reality, all of this is merely indicative that we live in a world where, as a prevalent kind of default paradigm, we don't show mercy to each other. We live in a performance-oriented world. So whites don't show mercy to blacks, blacks to whites, rich to poor, poor to rich, immigrants, disabled, unborn, people in, in uh, sexual orientation minorities. None of these people are the recipients of mercy. Those who betray us, those who lie to us, those who fail us, those who let us down, boom, 
done. It happens, right? So that's our world. And here comes this. Blessed are the merciful. Oh, yeah. I'd like to be merciful. How? Well, first, I need to move into an identity. And here's what I mean by that. Like, I cannot give mercy unless I see myself as the recipient of mercy. That's where this all starts. You will never be a merciful person unless you, like, in humility, see yourself as having been the recipient of something that you didn't deserve. So receiving mercy is difficult in our culture. Why? Two reasons. First, it's in our nature, all of us, because we're sons and daughters of Adam, all of us, it's in our nature uh, to be filled with shame and a little bit of condemnation, self-loathing. Like, underneath our veils, all of us have a little bit of self-image and self-esteem. Does this make sense? To, to any of you in the room, like we know, we, we know we fail. We know we have whatever our issues are, we have family issues, and everybody in the room could go to a therapist and we have stories to tell. All of us. There's no problem, we get it. So we're all, we're all falling short of living where we know we could be. We, many of us made resolutions in the room, but hello, it's February. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> right? And we're like this, man, I tr you know, I was going to run, but I stay home and eat instead. Why is that? And so there's a piece of us where we don't, like, we don't like ourselves and we're filled with shame. And this shame is destructive. Hear me. It's destructive. And it's rooted in Adam. Like when Adam sinned, and since we're children of Adam, we behave the way he did. When Adam sinned, immediately he knew he was naked. And what does it say? He wanted to cover his shame. So I have shame. Like I fall short beneath my veil of education and wealth and whatever it is that I have. I, like I fall short. And, and you do too. But, and so we try and cover it. In various ways, but underneath, in the quiet moment, all of us, at mo there's are moments when we know we're not living up to our potential. And then, and then uh, that's a problem. So we run, and we hide from God, we hide from each other. But, but in our culture, this is a problem in our culture. This shame thing, we all fall short. And so what do we do about it? Well... What the culture offers us is kind of this baseless, listen, therefore, love yourself. Do you understand? Like, hey, the problem is you fall short because you think you fall short. So why don't you wake up in the morning and, you know, hug yourself and look in the mirror and tell yourself how great you are. And it's like self-esteem therapy. Are you following me so far? And so now, now we live here where the pendulum has swung from shame you know, clear over here to uh, kind of this self-esteem culture where I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, all of us are winners, and you know, when you come to Christ, we just slap a bumper sticker on that, all of us are winners in Jesus. No. Hey, like, I'm going to tell you, this is problematic. Uh, you know, I grew up in a much different era, and my, when my kids played the little bit of sports that they played... They made their, you know, everybody made the team and everybody got a trophy at the end of the season and all this stuff. That was not me. Here's, this is my first Little League tryout when I'm nine. It's a Saturday morning and I could catch anything. So the first thing, you know, I want to be an outfielder. Catch this, catch that. You know, backhanded. I was good, but I couldn't hit a ball to save my life. So then it's, you know, batting time. You know, 20 pitches, not even a foul ball. I'll never forget it. 
I'm still scarred, right? And then uh, you go home, and that coach is all, there's all these coaches, you got a number on. The coaches go, if you made a team, we'll call you. Subtext, not all of you are going to make the team. If, you don't, if your phone doesn't ring by five, good luck, see you again next year. So, you know, I'm waiting, literally, I'm waiting by the phone all day long, no call. At five o'clock, I start to cry. You know, my dad comes in. He said, well, here's the problem, son. Can't hit the ball. <laughs> Self-esteem. <laughs> we'll fix it. You know, and then 8,000 pitches later, it's spring again. I made the team next year. All good. Fine. But what's my point? My point is, uh, like, there's nobody covering for me. I didn't make it. And then, and then, you know, there's a first place team, and they get a tall trophy. The second place team gets a short, the third place team gets a ribbon, and everybody else lost. That's the way it is, right? You got to go home and deal with the fact you lost. Maybe your coach took over a root beer float or something, even if you lost. He was a merciful coach, but that's, that was the life that we lived. And, and, and so we've, this pendulum has swung now. We live in a culture where we're terribly afraid of having people look in the mirror and see shortcomings. Does this, does this make sense? And it's actually problematic. Did you know that 80% of males think that they are healthier than the average male? Now, just think about that for a minute. That's <laughs> mathematically impossible, right? And did you know that Americans have taken tests, American students, 8th grade, 12th grade, have taken tests in both science and math and history in a global comparison study, and in all three categories, when American students were asked to self-rank themselves, like, how did you think you did? We're first. We're first, and we're first. But out of 30 countries, we're 12th, we're 23rd, and we're 29th. So, how's that self-esteem working out for you? Not so good. Why? Because it's not rooted in reality. So, man, Richard, what is it then? Shame or self-esteem? Uh, I'm glad you asked. There's another way here in the middle that I want to share with you, and it's from the scriptures. Uh, the ones with good self-esteem in Jesus' day, actually, were the Pharisees. <laughs> Did you know that? In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, Two guys go into the temple to pray, and one of them stands up and he says, Lord, and it's a, I mean, he's a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. I pray, I tithe, I fast, I'm righteous. Thank you, God, that you didn't make me like him. Now, if you want to know somebody with good self-esteem, that's Mr. Pharisee there, right? Like, well-educated, highly esteemed, upwardly mobile, you know, upstanding the community, Everything's right. Here's the problem. What he's done to bolster his self-esteem is he's reinterpreted God's law in keeping with who he already is. Does this make sense? I fast, so fasting, therefore, is the most important thing. I tithe, so tithing is the most important thing. I read my Bible, so reading my Bible is the most important thing. I'm heterosexual, so, so heterosexual is the most important thing. <laughs> I'm not drunk, so sobriety is the most important thing. And when we reinterpret the law by cherry-picking and kind of building a buffet that mirrors who we already are, we become what's called self-righteous. Does this make sense? And in our self-righteous assembly, we begin to look down on other people and judge them. But what we're doing is we're ignoring other parts of the law. <laughs> and so I, I, the law now reflects who I am, but I've ignored other parts of the law. I've ignored the parts that talk about inviting people into my home who could never repay me back. That's mercy. 
I've ignored turning the other cheek, going the second mile, laying down my life. I've ignored loving my enemies. I've ignored it. (laughs) And so, yeah, I have good self-esteem because I've reinterpreted the law to reflect who I already am, but that misses the point. And in the Old Testament, Israel thought they had righteousness because they were chosen. So if you're a Calvinist in the room, listen up, right? Chosen, there's a problem here. (laughs) Do you know, when Jacob had sons, he had 12 sons, 10 of them came to buy food from one of the sons. This is story in the book of Genesis. One son has food that he's doling out because he's been sold as a slave by all these brothers. Come down. They come to buy from. And so these guys are all, this is Israel. They're called to reflect the heart of God. Joseph recognizes them. They don't see him. So here's, there's a question. Who are you guys? Well, you know, we come from southern part, you know, to buy food. We come from up north. Joseph, what does Joseph say? You're spies. Then, it's in your Bible. This is what they say. Oh, no. Uh, listen, your servants are not spies. And then I, I love this. I've underlined in my Bible. We are righteous men. I underlined that. I actually drew a little box around it. And I, there's a, I got a theological comment over here because I like to put comments in my Bible. Here's my comment. Ha, ha, ha. That's what I wrote. <laughs> righteous men. We're righteous men. Yeah, we're righteous. Well, and then, you know, in parentheses, of course, there was the murder of an entire village and lying about it and then the rape that occurred in the wake of that and theft and, you know, one of us actually impreg- impregnated his own daughter-in-law because she was disguised as a prostitute. He slept with her after his wife died. And then we sold our brother as a slave and we lied about it to our father, indicating uh, to our father that his favorite son wasn't sold but had been killed by robbers. Like, other than that, we're righteous men. Like, where did they get self-esteem from? One place. You know, we're called by God. Listen, if you define righteousness this way, you're chosen, nothing uglier. Nobody more unteachable than the person with sound self-esteem. Why? Because if, I, like if I'm in love with who I already am, I don't see any need for improvement. Does this make sense? And then I become you know, profoundly unteachable, and that's called self-righteousness. So that in this same parable, uh, when the Pharisee comes up and says, thank you that I'm you know, not like this guy, and I do all these things, the other guy, it says he couldn't even look up. And he beat his chest. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And then Jesus asked the question, which one of these prayers did God hear and answer? And it's a rhetorical question. Everyone in the room knew, though no one liked the answer. Who's, who, who's the favored one in this story? The tax collector. Everybody hates the tax collector. But, but he has favor with God. Why? Because he knows that he knows that though he could be here, he's here. That's good news, not bad. Really? Yeah, listen. Read Romans 7 sometime. Here's a man wanting to live here. And what what does Paul say? He says, the good that I want to do, what? I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I do. I try, I fail. I try again, I fail. I make a New Year's resolution, I break it. I want intimacy, I'm guarded. I want to be honest, I lie. (laughs) I want purity, I lust. I want generosity. I'm still greedy, holding on to my money. I want peace. I'm fearful. Wretched man that I am. Oh, man. Paul, you've got to get to a therapist right away. 
Because your self-esteem, man, listen, if you, got, you can learn here to love yourself. No, 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 wait a minute. The better path, at least the first path, at least the starting point must be this. Wretched man that I am. And then he asks the important question, who will deliver me? <clears throat> what a great question. Because as soon as I say who, do you know what's happened? That's, that's the beginning of the upward trajectory. Why? I've stopped looking inwardly for my own transformation. Why? Because I can't transform myself. Jesus said it over and over again. You can't do anything. So as soon as I say it's hopeless, that's good news. That's the irony of the gospel. Who will deliver me? And then, very next verse. Uh, thanks be to God who gives us deliverance as, as a gift, merciful gift. Through Christ, I'll be transformed. You got bad self-esteem? Good. <laughs> You're the cusp of transformation. Why? Because in, with empty hands, you can receive mercy. That's what we all need. I, and I will say to you, I know it. I know I can't live the Christian life. I know, I know without Christ, and I say this, I know without Christ I wouldn't, I wouldn't be married. <laughs> I couldn't, I, I wouldn't be. Something would have done me in. Anger, cynicism, mistrust, fear, lust. I couldn't do it. Let alone do this. Are you kidding me? So I don't stand up here because I've got something. I stand up here because my hands are empty and I have, the only thing I have to share with you is something that I don't own. It's Christ, do you see? Who can be in and through us, but we cannot be on our own. But the starting point is you saying what? I cannot be on my own. That's good news. Receive mercy. Then, second, then you need to move into action. You start giving mercy, right? Why? Because, look, uh, God's intent w was not that... He would give you mercy, and then you'd, you know, cap it. I wish I had a thing here, like a little spigot at the bottom, and I'd open it here, and I'd pour in here so it could pour out here, because that's the gospel. How do I know? Matthew 10, verse 8. Jesus sent his disciples out. What does he say? I'm paraphrasing, but he says, hey, do, do good stuff. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, and then here's the, this is the governing paradigm. You have freely received, so now what? Freely give. Give as freely as you've received. If God's forgiven you, forgive. If God's blessed you materially, give materially. If God's healed you emotionally, then be part of healing another emotionally. Whatever God has done, give it back over and over and over again. And what you see then is this upward spiral because you, you have received mercy, you give mercy, and then when you give mercy, you receive more mercy back to give more and more and more. And a trickle becomes a stream, becomes a river, becomes an ocean, becomes the kingdom of God. But only if you give what you've received. Our community is filled with people who are doing this already. I'll show you one right now. We have a video, somebody living as a channel of mercy. Watch with me. My name's Eileen Tsao, and I'm a public defense attorney. When we're gifted with any sort of privilege or talents or resources or whatever it might be, like God has tasked us with sharing it with people who don't have that. Being a lawyer, I'm in the unique position where I can walk alongside someone who doesn't have a legal education, didn't get the chance to grow up going to good schools, 
and is in a really scary position where they've been accused of committing a crime by the government and by law enforcement and in a position that all of society does not think that you're worthy. And so I get to work with those people and it really is an honor to be able to represent their humanity, that they're in the image of God, they're image bearers just like I am, just like we are, to make sure that just because these bad things have been said about them, that doesn't define them, that's not who they are. You know, true justice is that none of us would have salvation. And God and the message of Jesus is one of mercy and of loving people for who they are in that moment. It, it makes me sad to hear people just talk about criminals as some big package of people that aren't like us. Because as a Christian, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's a big part of why I feel being a public defender lets me live into the grace that God has shown me. I just want to remind you that uh, our community here at Bethany is filled with people like this. And so uh, an assignment, if I can call it that, uh, even for today, is we're beginning this initiative where we want to populate our, our window in the back with uh, stories that you see in the lives of others where people are embodying mercy. Uh, and so today, as we talk about mercy, when you see somebody who's practicing mercy, I'm going to ask you before you leave to name it and share what's, what someone you know and what they're doing, not yourself, but somebody else. And, and, then, uh, and then you turn them in at the back, and next week when you arrive, uh, you see them all. They'll be posted up there, and we're going to keep doing this for the next four weeks as we finish this series. Um, I wrote uh, on mine, I can see it. Uh, Dave has been faithfully working the community meal for years and years, offering mercy-building relationships. So however you do it. But this is, this is what it means. And in contrast to this, we saw uh, uh, the scripture and heard it read by Eric earlier, the parable of the unforgiving servant. He received mercy, but then having received mercy, he went, around, he went back to someone who owed to him, and he wanted from that person uh, his just payment. And it was just, but it was just with, but listen, mercy is intended, Jesus said this, mercy is intended to triumph over justice. Can you believe that? Mercy triumphing over judgment and justice. So desire mercy, not sacrifice, means that proving the, the proving ground of our faith is revealed in real relationships more than like pious participation. In other words, when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Matthew 9, 13, quoting Hosea, what he's saying is this is not what defines the reality of our faith. Gathering is not the thing. This is form. Communion is form. Tithing is form. Bible reading is form. Note-taking is form. Singing is form. But... Ultimately, those forms are intended to empower us and equip us to do mercy, right, when we leave here. And that's what defines our faith. I desire, says Jesus, I desire mercy even more than form. So we're called to go out into a world that is very, to be blunt, tired of Christianity because we, we have a history of failing here, failed here in Rwanda. Failed here in Belgium, failed here in Spain, failed here in England, failed here in America, oppressed in Jesus' name, enslaved in Jesus' name. And so people are rightly skeptical of us, rightly. And now our invitation is, is to go out and in a world totally cynical about mercy, to be people of mercy. 
And this is why our Lord challenges us when he calls us to pray and teaches us to pray. And he says, look, when you, when you pray and ask God to forgive you, do you remember this? Forgive us our trespasses, Lord. Thank you. Is that the prayer? No. Forgive us our trespasses, what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, this, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, this is what you're praying. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive me in exactly the same way that I'm forgiving those around me. Really? Do you really want to pray that? Well, it's an invitation every time we pray it to take stock and evaluate our relationships because Jesus so desperately wants us to be on the ground of mercy, not judgment. There was a man, uh, Dr. Boris Cornfield. He was Jewish, he was atheist, he was communist. He made a joke at a party about communism in Russia. Uh, and he was arrested and tossed in the gulag back in the day, right? And then in the gulag, uh, he, <laughs> he met a man who, uh, who was a Christian. He was a cellmate, actually. Shared the gospel with him little fragments of the Bible that he had acquired somehow. And Cornfield became a Christian. This Jewish atheist communist became a Christian. And he was also kind of the camp doctor. And a man came to him for treatment, and he, he, he treated him. But then he, every night then, he would come and he'd talk to this man and tell him why he'd become a Christian. And the man who was hearing the testimony of Cornfield, he writes about this. Now, and he says, uh, Dr. Cornfield said to me, I should be angry because I was arrested and tossed in here just for telling a joke at a party. And he says, but I'm not, I'm not angry. He says, no, God was merciful. Listen to this. God was merciful in bringing me here. Why? Because being here is where I met Jesus. And that's the greatest gift I've ever received in my life. I'm so grateful for a merciful God. I hope you can know him. That was the last conversation he had. Dr. Corfield was beaten to death that night by a fellow prisoner. The man, though, who heard his testimony, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who went on to become a great author, Nobel Peace Prize, Christ follower. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, and this brings us to our third and final point, they shall what? Receive mercy. This is the last thing we need to do is receive what we've already given. And this is not hard. Jesus says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatever you sow, you will what? Reap. It's law. Sow mercy, receive mercy. Sow judgment, receive judgment. Blessed are the merciful. But it starts... With empty hands, do you see? It starts with my need to receive mercy. How's your self-esteem this morning? I hope it's not okay. I hope instead of self-esteem, you come to the point, I really hope this, where you say, you know what, my failures, my successes, irrelevant. Because in the end, they don't matter. What gives life meaning isn't who I am. What gives life meaning is who I am in Christ. I've received mercy, and now I'm invited in God's story. May that be your story as well. Let's pray together. Father, meet us now in these moments as we respond at your table. May we receive, in these moments, may we receive the mercy found in you alone. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.